When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. friends, welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson and today we'll be studying 3rd Nephi 1 through 7. The fact that we're in 3rd Nephi means that we have left behind what one scholar called the terrifying book of Helaman. And in some ways it truly was terrifying, especially in how applicable it is to our day. We're living through some terrifying days and it's all been described in advance in the Book of Mormon. But before starting with 3rd Nephi or even looking back to Helaman, I actually want to begin today in the Doctrine and Covenants quick field trip to Restoration Scripture, specifically section 118, which is one of the more obscure revelations in this dispensation. The main purpose of section 118 was to call the Quorum of the Twelve on a mission to Great Britain. But the context of the revelation is fascinating, and it has everything to do with what we're going to be talking about today in 3 Nephi chapter 1. You see, when this revelation was given, it was July 8, 1838, and the saints are at far west Missouri. And in verse 4 of this revelation, the Quorum of the Twelve is told, The next spring let them depart to go over the great waters, and there promulgate my gospel. If the Lord had left it at that, fairly vague, everything would have been fine. Well, sometime next spring, just head out on this mission. But the next verse, verse 5, goes from fairly vague to incredibly specific. The Lord says, Let them take leave of my saints in the city of Far West, on the 26th day of April next, on the building spot of my house, saith the Lord. This is definitely not one of those it mattereth not kinds of mission calls we occasionally see in the Doctrine and Covenants. He puts a finger down and says, on this date, from this location, it's a lot more like modern mission calls. This is where you're going to be serving, and this is the day you're supposed to report to the Missionary Training Center. Well, when the revelation was received there in the summer of 1838, fine. I mean, they're in far west, so he's basically just saying, leave on this date from here. But between the receipt of this revelation and its fulfillment, everything changed for the saints. More and more persecution, expelled from this area. In fact, the extermination order, which drove out the Latter-day Saints from the entire state. By the time the Quorum of the Twelve was supposed to be leaving on this mission, the saints were suffering in a swamp that was yet to become beautiful Nauvoo. To the point that a lot of church members, and even leaders, started to wonder about the propriety of fulfilling this prophecy. Even the prophet's own father said, it's not wise to go back to Missouri and leave on your missions from there. Just leave from here. The Lord will take the will for the deed, or as we would say, it's the thought that counts. And yet that counsel, which seems entirely reasonable to me, wasn't enough for the Quorum of the Twelve. Brigham Young and others said, no, if the Lord said through the prophet Joseph that we're leaving on that date from that location, then we're going to do it. And so they set out on what would become one of the most fascinating missionary farewells in church history. The story is told best by a man who accompanied the Quorum of the Twelve back on this trip. His name was Theodore Turley. He describes an experience he had in advance of this event, where he was in the room with a bunch of angry Missourians, including some Latter-day Saint apostates, who were brandishing this revelation and saying, there's no way this one's going to get fulfilled, Elder Turley. So surely you'll deny that Joe Smith was a prophet. 
because we've got a date. We can stand in the way. We can force this revelation to be unfulfilled. They said to Elder Turley, you as a rational man will give up Joseph Smith being a prophet and an inspired man. He and the Twelve are now scattered all over creation. Let them come here if they dare. If they do, they'll be murdered. As that revelation cannot be fulfilled, you will now give up your faith. Talk about an ultimatum. And that's what points me to 3 Nephi chapter 1. But in response, what did Elder Turley do? He jumped up and said, in the name of God, that revelation will be fulfilled. They laughed him to scorn. But when the actual day arrived for this prophecy to be fulfilled, shortly after midnight, on the morning of that date, in the darkness of the night, at the temple site in far west Missouri, they conducted their business. They sang a hymn, Adam on Diamond, quietly, I imagine, and then they hightailed it out of there, beginning their trip back to start on their journey to the mission field. But Elder Turley couldn't quite help himself. On the way out of Missouri, he stopped by the home of a man who had brought the gospel to him years ago. His name was Isaac Russell. Since then, Russell had apostatized. Well, having to rub it in a little bit, Brother Turley knocked on Isaac Russell's door. Isaac Russell's wife opened the door and said, oh, it's Brother Turley. Come on in. And Isaac inside was like, are you kidding, honey? It's not Elder Turley. He couldn't possibly be here. But when he realized that his wife was telling the truth, he's kind of shocked by this and says, what are you doing? Come on in, let's talk. And Brother Turley said, oh, oh I can't. I'll, I'll lose my company. And Russell was like, well, what company? And he just smiled. Oh, the 12. Don't you know what today is? He explained what had happened in the wee hours that morning and said, we are now heading off on this mission. And then Elder Turley booked it out of there. I admire the courage of Brother Turley and the Quorum of the Twelve. I even kind of like Brother Turley's bravado to go back to Isaac Russell's house and let him know what they'd just done. There was something about faith and works coming together in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Even when it seemed like their lives were on the line, that's exactly what's happening in 3 Nephi chapter 1. If you remember where we ended last time, Samuel the Lamanite has been prophesying the destruction of the Nephites, but that was 400 years away. Who was going to be around to see if that was fulfilled? Prophesying the death of Christ and the destruction that would take place surrounding those events? Well, that was less specific as far as when it would occur. But five years from now, a sign of Christ's birth will come, and it will come so unmistakably that it will be brutally obvious when it happens or if it doesn't. And as the date approaches, the disbelievers make sure that it is a life or death proposition, just as it would have been for the apostles in 1839. So let's start in 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1. We start with two dates, the 91st year of the reign of the judges and the 600th year from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. That's an important recognition on the historian's part. Because way back in 2 Nephi 25, we're told, For according to the words of the prophets, the Messiah cometh in 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem. So you have Nephi's ancient prophecy and a much more recent prophecy from Samuel the Lamanite. Unfortunately for the believers at this moment, none of the people that made these prophecies are still around. Obviously, that original Nephi is long gone. But if you remember from Helaman chapter 16, after Samuel the Lamanite jumps off the wall, escapes with his life, returns to his own people, and is never heard of again among the Nephites. And perhaps even worse for the locals here, verse 2, Nephi, the son of Helaman, the one that had made his own incredible prophecies regarding the murder of the chief judge and so on, well, he's gone too. 
he had departed out of the land of Zarahemla, passing all the responsibility down to his son, Nephi. And then in verse 3, that elder Nephi departed out of the land, and whither he went, no man knoweth. I imagine this would be a little nerve-wracking for the members of the church. It's one thing for Samuel to leave. He didn't live here. He came in, gave his prophecies, and then went back. But Nephi and the details of his departure are kind of nebulous. He just departed and we don't even know where he went? Is he getting out of Dodge? Is he avoiding D-Day when the fulfillment of that impossible prophecy was supposed to come to pass? Now, if that fact is making it harder to believe, thankfully verse 4 is making it a little bit easier. Behold, the prophecies of the prophets began to be fulfilled more fully. There began to be greater signs, greater miracles wrought among the people. So faith did still have a leg to stand on, but unfortunately, so did doubt. And the disbelievers did everything in their power to shift the center of gravity from faith to doubt, from belief to disbelief. Verse 5, there were some who began to say, the time was past for the words to be fulfilled, which were spoken by Samuel the Lamanite. I mean, there's some wiggle room here, right? Is it five years to the day of the prophecy or sometime in that fifth year? That's a little bit unclear. I mean, they knew the year, but not the day nor the hour, to borrow that language. That phrase, the time was past, actually reminds me of an interesting verse from 2 Peter chapter 3. This whole chapter, by the way, fits this context perfectly. Fits our own context, anticipating the second coming perfectly. But verses 3 and 4, Peter says this, There shall come in the last days scoffers. Remember Samuel was mocked? Well, these latter-day scoffers will be walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Time goes on. Days come and go. The years roll by. And it's all the same. Now again, it wasn't. Greater signs, greater miracles, prophecies being fulfilled. But in some ways, it's easy to downplay those and just say, same stuff has happened as always happened. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been famine. There's always been plague. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. Signs of the times, these are signs of all times. Anything to downplay the significance of the time that they're living in. And then notice verse 6. They began to rejoice over their brethren. That was a little like the scoffing that Peter talked about. And they said, Behold, the time is past. The words of Samuel are not fulfilled. Therefore, your joy and your faith concerning this thing hath been vain. You've believed for no reason. Your faith is unfounded. And not just your faith, your joy. See, there seems to be almost this tug of war, this wrestling over rejoicing in verse 6. The disbelievers rejoicing over their brethren and trying to take away not just the faith, but the joy of those that they're opposing. Alma and Korahor, back in Alma 30, were similarly wrestling over the idea of joy, of what constitutes real lasting happiness and who deserves to have it. It is an interesting recognition on the disbelievers' part, however, that a life of discipleship did seem to be joyful to those that were engaged in it. Verse 7, it came to pass that they did make a great uproar throughout the land. The people who believed began to be very sorrowful. See the pendulum swing? Gone from joy to sorrow. Sorrowful lest by any means those things which had been spoken might not come to pass. Interesting how often doubt becomes an emotional issue where sorrow, worry, concern, fear, all of those emotions come into play. 
And it's interesting to see that exact kind of thing happening in our day. A believer reads something on the internet, listens to a podcast, watches a video, is confronted with information and misinformation mingled together in one that seems to call into question their faith and the joy they've been feeling in living the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they start to wonder. They start to question. They start to ask, what if? What if it might not be true? And as that question begins to weigh down upon them, there is sorrow that follows. Sometimes there's anger even. And I think those feelings are totally natural. The question is, what do we do with them? In verse 8, the believers did watch steadfastly for that day and that night and that day, which should be as one day as if there were no night. And why so vigilant? So that they might know that their faith had not been vain. That's their hope. I just don't want to have believed in nothing or lived a certain lifestyle for no good reason. Now, even in the absence of absolute assurance, there has been good reason. There has been joy throughout it all. Notice they don't wonder if their joy has been vain. That happiness was real. I just wonder about my faith. I even see that in people that I work with and talk to that are leaving the church. It's almost always doctrine or history that they're questioning. Not the Latter-day Saint lifestyle. They tend to see goodness there. They tend to recognize the joy they felt. In fact, in some ways, they miss that joy because now, weighed down with doubt, they're only feeling the sorrow that's mentioned in verse 7. But notice how they're watching in verse 8. I love the adverb that's chosen. They watched steadfastly. Makes me wonder, how do we watch as we're looking for information to confirm our faith, as we're waiting for assurances, which we typically hope will be intellectual, not emotional or spiritual. Just prove it to me so I don't have to wonder and I don't have to worry and I don't have to watch anymore. Let me just lay it all to rest. Well, these believers watched steadfastly. But do we sometimes watch nervously? Do we watch impatiently? Do we watch desperately? Or on the flip side, do we watch pridefully? Is it pride that's keeping us grounded? Oh, you just wait. Eventually, I'll be able to throw this evidence in your face. But I worry about quote-unquote faith or hope devoid of charity. Faith, hope, and charity all need to come together. So even if you're holding to your belief, if you're watching pridefully, then there's some repenting that needs to happen on our part too. By all means, watch for further evidence, further confirmation of your faith. But watch faithfully. Watch patiently. Watch humbly. Watch steadfastly. The signs will come. Well, as far as the disbelievers were concerned, even that level of faith, and patience. We're too vague. No, we're going to establish a day. We don't know exactly what day Samuel had in mind, and so we're going to pick one. And in verse 9, there was a day set apart by the unbelievers that all those who believed in those traditions should be put to death, except the sign should come to pass, which had been given by Samuel the prophet. Now, how they could get away with making belief in false prophecy a capital offense, I don't know. There's no authority for that. But if they had the power to do that, then who cares about authority? We'll see that later in these chapters. But just like the apostles, going back into Missouri where there is an extermination order for any Latter-day Saint, well, this too was a prophecy that dealt in life and death. 
verse 10, when Nephi, the son of Nephi, our new prophet, when he saw this wickedness of his people, notice he's still claiming them. They're his people. But seeing their wickedness, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. Notice Nephi's sorrow in 10 is very different than his people's sorrow back in verse 7. In 7, they sorrowed over their own possible lack of faith. In 10, Nephi is sorrowing over his people's lack of righteousness. And with sorrow moving him, apparently more than fear, in verse 11, he goes and bows himself down upon the earth and cries mightily to his God in behalf of his people. Beautiful possessive pronouns there. Yea, those who were about to be destroyed because of their faith in the tradition of their fathers. He recognized their doubt and its cause. He recognized what they were up against, but he recognized their faith too. Faith in spite of the odds. Verse 12, he cried mightily unto the Lord all that day. This was Enos intensity and for good reason. But by the end of that day, the voice of the Lord came unto him and notice what he said, starting in verse 13. Lift up your head and be of good cheer. In this tug of war over joy, in this struggle over sorrow, lift up your head, cheer up. Joy was yours in your time of faith. Joy can still be yours even in this wrestle of doubt. Cheer up, things will get better. For behold, the time is at hand. And on this night shall the sign be given, and on the morrow come I into the world. Now, I don't know if these disbelievers just happened to pick the right date. Their D-Day was incredibly coincidental. Or if perhaps the Lord in his tender mercy said, oh, that's the day? I'm happy to bump up my due date in case of emergency. And this is an emergency. And then the Lord, premortal, soon to become mortal, tells Nephi two reasons why he's coming at this moment of great alarm. First, to show unto the world that I will fulfill all that which I have caused to be spoken by the mouth of my holy prophets. I love that. that's the first reason the Lord gives. Oh, I'll come then, not just to save the lives of my followers, but to defend the words of my prophets. In last week's lesson, I kept saying that time vindicates the prophets. Hugh Nibley gave an incredible lecture series decades ago with that as the title. But it's not just that time vindicates the prophets. The Lord personally vindicates the prophets. And again, notice the personal pronouns in what he said. I will fulfill it because I caused it to be spoken because those are my holy prophets. I've got their back because they've got my name and my authority and are delivering my words to my people. Prophets indeed may be mortal, but they do have divine backup. Later in the chapter, verse 20, beautiful phrase, it came to pass, yea, all things, every wit, according to the words of the prophets. Of course it did. That was the first reason the Lord gave. Everything they said, every wit, I'll make sure it comes to pass. He reiterates that at the beginning of verse 14, so still the first reason he's coming. Behold, I come unto my own to fulfill all things which I have made known unto the children of men from the foundation of the world. So this isn't just for Samuel the Lamanite's sake. If all the holy prophets have spoken more or less of Christ, as the Book of Mormon says, then the Savior has a whole host of witnesses to vindicate from Adam on down. So there's the first reason. The second, he then says, 
and to do the will both of the Father and of the Son. So if in some ways the first reason was the Lord looking down at his servant saying, I've got you. The second reason was him looking up at his father saying, I'll follow you too. The word of prophets and the will of God come together with Christ in the middle, fulfilling those words and fulfilling that will. Jesus, after all, is the intermediary between God and man. He's pulling them together in all that he does. But then he clarifies what he meant by the Father and the Son, and it goes beyond doing Heavenly Father's will. He says, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. Now this ties us back to that very difficult passage in Mosiah chapter 15 that describes Jesus as the Father and the Son. If that still confuses you, go back and watch that lesson. It's an important one, where Jesus is both Father and Son. This is not crypto-Trinitarianism. Abinadi is not trying to explain the nature of the Godhead. He's trying to understand and explain the nature of Christ that enables him to perform the atonement. The why of his coming grows out of the how of his coming. And it's the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus has a father side and a son side, a divinity and humanity melded in one, fully God and fully man. Again, I go into that in detail in that lesson in Mosiah 15. But here he's reiterating it. I'm not just coming to do Heavenly Father's will, although that's definitely the case. He's here to do his own will, at least the Father side of him. That's what he says, of the Father because of me. Here he is in pre-mortality, at least for a few more hours, right? This is who I am. I chose this. Here am I, send me, still applies. I'm coming because of me. That is the Father side of me, divinity speaking out. And I'm coming to do the will of the Son, the Son side of me, that which I'm about to step into because of my flesh. The Word, it's this is so fascinating. The Word made flesh, well, the Word is about to become flesh. And it's that side of him that is willing Jesus forward into mortality and through mortality as well. I love that the Lord is giving this hint of the doctrine of the incarnation hours before he fully condescends to participate in it. And I also love that those two sides of him, the divine and the mortal, the father side and the son side, are in full agreement as to their will. We want to come to the world. The closer Jesus gets to Gethsemane, you see this almost schism of soul, this wrestle between his two sides. As he approached the agonies of Gethsemane, the will of the Son was truly tested. But I love that here, stepping into mortality, the Savior's two sides are fully reconciled. This is one will as Father and Son me and my flesh about to come together. And even as mortality throws all that it can at him, those two wills would never fully separate. It's the fusing and the fulfillment of those two wills that allows humanity to be saved at the death of Christ. And it's here that we see it saving them even at the birth of Christ. As he says at the end of verse 14, the end of this 
visit of assurances. Behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall the sign be given. I remember my wife's feelings on those nights before a birth was to take place. How nervous, how excited, how hopeful, how scared she was. Me too. I can only imagine all that is taking place within Christ's mind and heart here. Perhaps his compassion and empathy and understanding for what Nephi and his fellow disciples were feeling was more perfect than we might imagine. But he's coming and you'll be fine. So lift up your head and be of good cheer. Nothing to sorrow over. You know, I find it fitting that the Lord would come to visit Nephi with assurances this night. But what's interesting about that is the assurance wasn't necessary because the night was going to come and the sign was going to follow. So even if he hadn't told Nephi in advance, Nephi would be fine. Nephi was getting a preview of coming attractions, but the attraction was on its way with or without the preview. Things were going to be fine. In fact, if I were making up this story myself, I'd probably leave out that reassurance because then it really cranks up the emotional intensity of this moment. Can you picture the sun setting over the distant hills and the twilight and you start to worry? Well, start to worry. They've been worrying for a long time. But that moment of greatest alarm. The first time I felt this way about anything was years ago studying the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. She's about to die herself, right? Her and her son. One last meal. And Elijah comes and says, feed me first. And then, spoiler alert, Elijah. Don't say anything. Just let her feed you and then ask her to make one more for herself and her son as she thinks, are you crazy? You just saw me use the last bit of my meal and oil. Well, just reach in one more time. Can you imagine the look of shock as she reaches in and finds that the barrel is not empty after all? Wouldn't that be so much more dramatic than the way it played out in Scripture? Man, Elijah, you told her in advance. Man, too bad. Elijah stole his own thunder. But then it dawned on me in my zeal to make things a, a little more epic, a little more intense. I felt this kind of chastisement saying, this is already intense enough. She's about to die, so she thinks. And a promise of reassurance is not the same thing as the fulfillment of the promise itself. In either case, you still have to trust the prophet. The widow of Zarephath still has to exercise faith in Elijah's word. Nephi here still has to exercise faith in the Lord's promise. I'm grateful that the Lord does not withhold his word just for dramatic effect. Our lives are dramatic enough. And if he will whisper reassurances to me through the words of a living prophet, I am grateful for that reassurance in advance. These spoilers may rob a bit of intensity from the actual fulfillment of the promise, but I will take these previews of coming attractions any day. Thank heaven, literally, that the Lord will do nothing save he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets, and that in advance of their fulfillment. By the time we reach verse 15, and I don't know how much time Nephi had to spread the good news but it came to pass that the words which came unto Nephi were fulfilled according as they had been spoken. For behold, at the going down of the sun, 
there was no darkness. And the people began to be astonished because there was no darkness when the night came. Verse 19 goes into further detail. It came to pass that there was no darkness in all that night. It was as light as though it was midday. And it came to pass that the sun did rise in the morning again according to its proper order. And they knew that it was the day that the Lord should be born because of the sign which had been given. Can you imagine seeing the sun rise and it not adding any illumination to the day? There's a different source of light, anything but artificial, but no sunlight needed. Because even before dawn, it looked like midday. It reminds me of creation. Some people have attacked the Bible saying the creation story is nonsense because God says, let there be light, and yet he doesn't create the sun for a few more days. Well, where on earth is that initial light coming from in the very first day of creation? To which we, with the help of Doctrine and Covenants 88, for example, would say, oh, that light is Jesus. The light of Christ, which fills the immensity of space, that light which gives the sun its light. Essentially, when God said, let there be light, at the dawn of creation, he was saying, let there be Jesus. After all, creation occurred when God spake, and Jesus is the Word. So whether it's God speaking, that's Jesus. Whether God declaring, let there be light, that's Jesus. The light of the world has come. He's not dependent upon the sun for illumination. Like I already said, all humanity would receive its opportunity for salvation with the death of Christ. But for this group of desperate disciples, they were saved by Christ's birth. The promises of Christmas and Easter truly came together in one for this group. And they knew it. They knew what the sign signified. They knew that Jesus had come into the world. The same is true of us. We will know that Jesus has come into our world when you find reassurance in the face of your deepest despair, when you find yourself surrounded by light, even in your darkest moments, when you find life, even when you're staring death in the face, when you find yourself able to stand through those experiences, you will know that Jesus has come, that he's here that he's a part of your world, part of your life. You've come unto him, he's come unto you. Lift up your head and rejoice. The fact that you're ever able to do that against the odds is evidence of Christ in you, of Emmanuel, God with us. At that moment of unmistakable recognition, when the believers are lifting their heads up, the disbelievers, are falling down. Verse 16, there were many who had not believed the words of the prophets who fell to the earth and became as if they were dead. There's some poetic justice there too. Death was going to come upon one group or the other. They were threatening the righteous with physical death. Well, here they are feeling an emotional death, a spiritual death of sorts, realizing that they had cut themselves off from Christ who had come. The way that verse continues lets us know about something else. For they knew that the great plan of destruction 
We always talk about plans of salvation, a plan of happiness, but a great plan of destruction, which they had laid for those who believed in the words of the prophets, had been frustrated, for the sign which had been given was already at hand. Too late for them. It already came. You see what they were after? It was the plan of the disbelievers. We have to somehow rob prophets of credibility. They're a rival authority. Surely people wouldn't hold to their testimony of prophets if we made it a life and death proposition. Well, now our plan has died. Our credibility has perished. And prophets are looking better than ever. God has vindicated them. And again, as part of this plan, if we can just tie it to some natural, or in this case, completely unnatural event, then we look totally innocent. We can wash our hands of it and say, well, it's not us killing you. We're not persecuting you. You've just been proven wrong. We can look innocent. We can look objective. We can look rational, right? It is not reasonable that such a being as a Christ should come. It certainly isn't reasonable that there'll be a day, night, and day with no darkness. This is insanity on your part, and we will make the grave your asylum. But no, none of that worked. Instead, in verse 17, they began to know not began to believe. It was too late for that. Remember we talked about that last week? This sign is going to be so unmistakable that not only would there be cause to believe, that's why signs are given, but also that there would be no cause for unbelief. Mercy and justice coming together at the fulfillment, right? They began to know, too late to exercise faith, that the Son of God must shortly appear. Yea, and find all the people upon the face of the whole earth. This is universal knowledge. From the west to the east, the north to the south, they were so exceedingly astonished that they fell to the earth. And then back to knowledge, for they knew that the prophets had testified of these things for many years. The plan had been to delegitimize the prophets, but these signs fully legitimized them. The sign which had been given was already at hand. They began to fear because of their iniquity and their unbelief. Belief and behavior always come together. In this case, bad behavior, iniquity, and bad belief, unbelief. Again, I think we need to sit with that for a moment. To begin to know it's now too late to exercise faith because I can't not know. And where there's no room for doubt, there's no room for faith. Where doubt is not a danger, faith cannot be a courageous choice, an exercise of agency, a moral decision. This is now simply a fine grasp of the obvious, surrender in the face of unavoidable defeat. No wonder they began to fear, because that is the opposite of faith. And they never had it then, and they can't have it now. It's just pure knowledge. I alluded to Elder Maxwell's statement last week. I actually want to quote it clearly today because this is such an appropriate place for it. In a talk he gave in October of 1974 called Why Not Now, which in my opinion is one of the most amazing pieces of reverse psychology I've ever seen in a general conference address. It's so worth reading. But he concludes his talk with this question. If you sense that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, why not do so now? For in the coming of that collective confession, it will mean much less to kneel down when it is no longer possible to stand up. Returning to 3 Nephi, it will mean much less to 
know then when it is no longer possible not to know. Take advantage of these days of doubt to exercise and build your faith. Someday it will not only be less necessary, it will be less possible because we will know. Now these poor frustrated disbelievers, you got to credit them for their persistence and their ingenuity. Even in the face of absolute knowledge, they still tried to force disbelief back in. Verse 22, it came to pass that from this time forth there began to be lines sent forth among the people. You see, it couldn't just be planting seeds of doubt. It had to be full-on dishonesty. The truth was known, so their only hope was through lies. They were sent forth among the people by Satan with this intent, to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. Later we'll see that he tries to blind their eyes, but it's still too early for that. It's obvious. It's right in front of you. You do have a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, we can't attack the reason anymore. We tried that in the last chapter, but now let's attack the hope. Let's try to harden their hearts. But again, too early for that. Notwithstanding these lyings and deceivings, the more part of the people did believe and were converted unto the Lord. Again, how could they not? Admittedly, so much of our modern, secularized world gives faith an uphill battle. But the day will come where it's doubt that has to play uphill. And as a result of this flourishing of faith, verse 23, Nephi went forth among the people and also many others. He wasn't alone after all, even after Samuel's departure. And they were baptizing unto repentance in the which there was a great remission of sins. I love that collective confession, to borrow Elder Maxwell's phrase again, this great remission of sins with all these people coming to be baptized unto repentance. And there's peace. Verse 24, there were no contentions. Well, save it were a few, but notice the type. They were arguing over theology, some endeavoring to prove by the scriptures that it was no more expedient to observe the law of Moses. Now, in this thing they did err, having not understood the scriptures. Now, that could go in both a negative as well as a positive way. If we interpret this negatively, some might have been saying, oh, Jesus came and his salvation is meant to be universal, and so we don't have to keep any commandments anymore. He's come to cover everything. So put it on his tab. Live however you want. Now, that's the negative approach. The positive is kind of what we saw at the end of 2 Nephi chapter 25. We teach the law because we live under it, but we also teach the deadness of the law so people will know that their life is in Christ. The law was just the schoolmaster all along, and we're ready to graduate into the gospel. I would hope that theirs was the positive approach to this misunderstanding, assuming that Christ had come to fulfill the law, not hoping that he'd come to destroy it. But either way, verse 25, they were soon converted, and convinced of the error that they had made. So by the end of the verse, they were brought to a knowledge of their error and did confess their faults. You see, in the middle of that, they were told, no, 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 the law isn't fulfilled until the death of Christ, not the birth. We still got another 33 years of offering animal sacrifice. But I love the enthusiasm. I mean, it's easy to make this mistake. After all, we were saved by his birth, but that was just physical. We're not saved spiritually until we're saved by his death. So keep living the law of Moses.
But I do love those three C's in verse 25. Converted, convinced, and confess. That's real repentance. Now in verse 26, the glad tidings are being spread throughout the people, all because of the signs which were coming to pass. And all that according to the words of the prophecy of all the holy prophets. Do we sense that over and over in this chapter? That God vindicates his prophets? He did for them. He will for those today. Verse 27 begins in peace. And yet, shockingly, there were still Gadianton robbers infesting the land with strongholds and secret places such that the righteous could not overpower them. In fact, in verse 28, those Gadianton robbers began to increase in a great degree. Why? Because there were many dissenters of the Nephites who did flee unto them. I wonder about that verb, flee? You've just had absolute knowledge of truth, no more room for doubt, and yet you're not just joining the Gadianton robbers, not just dissenting from the truth, but fleeing from it. What are you afraid of? What are you running from? It's almost like they're trying to get away from themselves, or at least get away from others that would force them to recognize themselves. It's tragic, but often when people dissent from truth, they don't want to hang around it. Staying friends and neighbors is still too difficult. The jack-in-the-box is always in danger of popping up and reminding me of truth and things as they really are. I've just got to get out, and I want to get out fast. It may seem strange, but it is true. So often when people dissent, they dissent fleeing. And their flight from faith, as we see at the end of 28, causes much sorrow to all those who remain. I have felt that sorrow when loved ones leave. And it's a different sort of sorrow than what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. Sorrowing, wondering if, what if what I believe isn't true after all? No, this is sorrow that it is true. Why can't they recognize it? It may have been even worse for the Lamanites, mentioned in verse 29, a cause of much sorrow among the Lamanites, because this seems to be a new experience for them. Nephites have struggled with dissenters for centuries, it seems. But the Lamanites, they have now have many children who did grow up and begin to wax strong in years, that they became for themselves... I've got a son that just turned 18, and he's constantly reminding me of the fact. Oh, I'm an adult now. He's become for himself. But these youth, this rising generation of adults, quote-unquote, were led away by some who were Zoramites. That's a name typically taken by dissenters. They were led away by them by their lyings and their flattering words to join those Gadianton robbers. And thus were the Lamanites afflicted also, and began to decrease as to their faith and righteousness. Shocking that we're reading that about these descendants of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or those who had been so powerfully converted by the preaching of Nephi and Lehi just a few chapters earlier. Remember, we saw that back in Helaman 15. They were firm and steadfast. Well, now they're starting to decrease as to their faith, belief, and righteousness, behavior, but it's because of the wickedness of the rising generation. So often the faith and the fears of older folks rise and fall on the back of the rising generation. We're counting on you. And your struggles are sometimes the source of our own. This is the Lamanite equivalent 
at what the Nephites felt way back in Mosiah chapter 26. A rising generation, unfamiliar with the words of King Benjamin, unconverted by that experience, and afflicting and affecting older folks who are wondering about the future of their faith. Now with chapter 1 behind us, a true masterpiece in the Book of Mormon, chapter 2 presents us with the polarization of the wicked and the righteous. We started seeing that at the end of chapter 1. To deny as obvious a sign as what you just saw, this, this explains a certain level of obstinance that is shocking to me. This isn't dwindling in unbelief. This is coming out in open rebellion. It's not apathy. It's antipathy. And so no wonder things get polarized. We actually see that at the end of section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Fascinating verses. Verse 35, the Lord says that the day speedily cometh, the hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth. Sounds like those terrifying days in Helaman and now in early 3rd Nephi. Christ is coming soon, next week in our study. So in our day, the time is nigh at hand, peace shall be taken from the earth, and here's why. The devil shall have power over his own dominion. And conversely, verse 36, also the Lord shall have power over his saints. You sense that polarization taking place? Throughout history, there seems to be this bell curve of righteousness and wickedness. With most of humanity somewhere in the middle, well, I'm on the Lord's side. I'm pretty good. Not as bad as others, but eh, not as good as those, those extremists that are really trying to live the gospel. But as time gets closer to the end time, that bell curve will flip as there is no more middle ground. Choose you this day whom you will serve, as for me and my house, right? Or how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. Less and less middle ground in the last days. You see, in war, when the bullets start flying, you've got to pick a side and dive in the trenches. There is no spiritual Switzerland in the last days. Satan will have power over his dominion. Total loss of agency. No wonder so many sins are described as addictions in our day. And the flip side, the Lord shall have power over his saints, not because he takes his followers' agency, but because they surrender it to him. They yield to the will of God. That you see happening in 3 Nephi chapter 2. The process is fascinating. Verse 1, it came to pass that thus passed away the 90 and 5th year also, and the people began to forget. If remember is one of the key words throughout Helaman, throughout scripture in general, then forgetting is one of the first steps towards losing faith. The people began to forget those signs and wonders which they had heard and began to be less and less astonished at a sign or a wonder from heaven, insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and now joined by the next and blind in their minds and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen. Verse 2, they were imagining up some vain thing in their hearts, that it was wrought by men and by the power of the devil to lead away and deceive the hearts of the people. And thus did Satan get possession of the hearts of the people again, insomuch that he did blind their eyes and lead them away to believe that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and a vain thing. And it came to pass that the people began to wax strong in wickedness and abominations, and they did not believe that there should be any more signs or wonders given. And Satan did go about leading away the hearts of the people, tempting them and causing them that they should do great wickedness in the land. You could write volumes about those three verses. 
Notice how it began. They forget past signs. Next step, they become less and less astonished at present signs. And then jump ahead to verse 3, they do not believe there will be any future signs. You see how past, present, and future are interrelated in this passage? If we get forgetful of the past and then apathetic in the present, then of course we have no faith for the future. This is a principle I've taught elsewhere. So if you've heard this before, please bear with me. It's worth repeating. Sister Camilla Kimball, President Kimball's wife, was a lifelong learner. Her last name was Irene, after all, before she got married. Yes, that Irene family of deep and critical thinkers. And with that critical mind, there were some questions she had about the gospel that she just couldn't answer, she couldn't resolve. But she didn't let her question marks overwhelm her exclamation points. Instead, as she famously described, she would take her questions and put them in a metaphorical box, which she would place on a metaphorical shelf. No need to let questions hold hostage the answers she'd already received. Well, I know enough ex-Latter-day Saints and anti-Latter-day Saints to know that they hate that analogy. They think it's a cop-out, that we're sticking our head in the sand, not wanting to face the difficult questions. Oh, sure, just put it on your shelf. But this dawned on me once when I was speaking to a group of members of another church when I lived in Tennessee. I was trying to explain the apostasy to justify the need for a restoration. And one sweet little old lady, not so sweet at the moment, got mad at me and said, how dare you claim that yours is the only true church? And in my efforts to try to defend that position gracefully, I reassured her in the same way I had people on my mission that by teaching apostasy and restoration, we're not trying to take anything away from other people's faiths. We're not saying other churches are false. We're simply saying that they're incomplete. And then I read her body language and her facial expression and realized, oh, she doesn't like the word incomplete any more than the word false. And so as I scrambled internally, wondering, what do I do here? I've offended her, and I'm the only Latter-day Saint in the room. I have no backup. Well, the backup came. And I heard myself saying to her and the congregation, yes, your church is incomplete, and so is mine. And then I wondered, what am I saying? I thought we had the fullness of the gospel. And then the ninth article of faith came to my rescue. And I explained it to them. There are actually three shelves, Sister Kimball, not just one. Because we believe all that God has revealed. That's revelation past. We believe all that he now reveals. That's revelation present. And we believe that God has yet to reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's shelf number three, revelations yet to come. You see, Sister Kimball's shelf is shelf number three in the ninth article of faith. And as I tried to explain to this congregation, there are things we don't know yet either. We believe what he's told us and others in the past, what he's telling us now. But we believe what he'll tell in the future and that it will come in the same means it always has through the conduit of prophets and apostles. That's the difference between us in our shared incompleteness. It always comes back to prophets and apostles whom God chooses to vindicate, as we've seen. But tying together Sister Kimball's shelf and the three elements of the ninth article of faith was a revelation to me. I'm sure it blessed me that day far more than it blessed the congregation I was trying to explain the restored gospel to. 
It's helped me ever since and helped a lot of people that I've tried to work with navigate their own crises of faith because what they're dealing with is an overloaded shelf number three and they only label it doubt instead of labeling it revelations yet to come. And how did that lesser label stick to it? Because they don't have anything on shelf number two and all that once was on shelf number one has gotten dusty to the point of oblivion. You see the order here in verses one, two, three? If you're forgetting the signs and wonders which you've already heard, you've allowed everything on shelf number one to grow dusty. I often will tell students or people that I'm working with, inventory shelf number one. Seriously, make a catalog of them. Spiritual experiences you've had. If you were to literally fill up a shelf of souvenirs, a leaf from the sacred grove, a white handkerchief from a temple dedication, a vial of consecrated oil, a copy of your patriarchal blessing, a well-worn set of scripture, memories. Remember what God has done for you. Dust it off. Recall, remember. And then shelf two. Is it occupied? Is God revealing things to you right now in your scripture study, in your pondering, in your prayer? What is he revealing to you as we speak? Because if you are engaged in current revelation and remembering and rejoicing in revelation past, then you're thrilled about shelf number three because you know what it is, revelation yet to come. You're excited you have stuff on the shelf, up in the box, things that God will yet reveal to you. And as life proceeds, you just keep rearranging things along the shelves. What you learned today on shelf number two gets moved down to shelf number one tomorrow, making room for whatever God wants to take out of shelf number three and move down to shelf number two for you. That's the process of living in Revelation. And these people have halted it. Forgot shelf one, dusty. Less and less astonished at shelf two, taking it for granted and then denying that anything will ever move out of shelf three. When that happens, an empty two, a dusty one, then an overloaded three just collapses and brings down the whole bookcase. It's exactly what the adversary is attempting to do here. There's something else worth seeing in this passage at the end of verse two. It seems to all lead up to believing that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and a vain thing. You remember how Nephi ended his books back in 2 Nephi? I'm done, I'm good to go, but I just want to reiterate the doctrine of Christ one more time. And it consisted of faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, and then endured to the end. That's 2 Nephi 31, that is the doctrine of Christ. It's the fourth article of faith in a nutshell. And Satan's goal here is to get us to believe that that's foolishness, that's vanity. Why would anybody place faith in the non-verifiable, the irrational, it's not reasonable? Why would you repent of sins when there's no such thing as sin? We live in a world of moral relativism or universal salvation, take your pick. Either way, just do what you wanna do. And as if repentance wasn't bad enough, baptism? covenanting to stay within that life of repentance, being baptized unto repentance? Are you kidding me? Why would you immerse yourself in that kind of restrictive lifestyle? And then after baptism, Holy Ghost, you want some unseen source there to confirm the insanity of your decision? Talk about foolish and vain. Doctrine of Christ? Who needs that? But here's the irony. 
as the adversary tries to lead us away from the doctrine of Christ, he can't remove it. He simply replaces it. This is how it typically works, right? If you have our four, faith, repentance, baptism, and Holy Ghost. Typically what the adversary does in this process is eliminate the Holy Ghost first. He's just going to reverse the process, okay? And he does the first by getting us to stop doing whatever it was that invites the Holy Ghost into our lives. We often hold on to the social strand of our conversion, but we've often given up on the spiritual strand. I'm either doing things that offend the Spirit, or I'm not doing the things that invite Him. Sins of commission, sins of omission, take your pick. But without the Holy Ghost confirming my belief, then no wonder my covenants get a little shaky. The grip that I was holding to them gets a little more tentative. I'm not as immersed in that lifestyle as I once was. And then my behavior seems to follow. I'm not repenting. I'm not keeping my covenants. I'm not having the Spirit confirm that I should. And with just faith holding on by a thread, no wonder it seems to snap and we fall. But as human beings, we can't live without faith. I know in our secular world they don't want to accept that, but they just want to place faith in something else and call it by some other name. There will always be some central unifying principle that governs your life, some ultimate concern, some anchor point that keeps you grounded. Pick whatever you want. I tend to label them as some kind of ism. Mormonism, as we used to call it, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, was your central unifying anchor point. It no longer is. But what's your new ism? It could be some other form of religious denominationalism or something non-religious at all. It could be hedonism. It could be secularism. It could be intellectualism. It could be fanaticism in some kind of sport or activity. It could be environmentalism. It could be more political with either conservatism or liberalism. It could be consumerism or commercialism. You'll find something to revolve your life around. And with that as your new object of faith, then the fourth article of faith, the doctrine of Christ or his replacement, just naturally kicks into gear. You've found your new ism, your object of faith. You will start behaving in a certain way to fall into line with it. Your behaviors will change based on your faith. In fact, it'll get to the point that you immerse yourself in that lifestyle. You commit to it. And then you'll start looking for confirmation that what you chose was the right choice. Until something gets in the way and you don't feel quite so confirmed in that decision. You become less committed and immersed to it. Your behavior starts to change. And then finally, you switch out that ism for something else. And then it just keeps working back down and back up and down and up. Up and down the fourth article of faith. That's life. Unless you're firm and steadfast in the true ism, the true faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've often asked my students, what are the most important five words in the fourth article of faith? And sometimes they'll say, oh, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. Five words. That sums it up. And I said, I didn't ask for a summary. I asked for the most important five words. And those five most important words are, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost will always be there. It's just a question of what are you placing your faith in. Here, the adversary is leading them to believe that the doctrine of Christ is a foolish and vain thing. So replace that object of faith with something else, something 
lesser. Take out those five words in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll still be following the fourth article of faith with something. One last element worth recognizing in these three verses is how often the adversary aims for the head and the heart. The two body parts that God focuses on in the spirit of revelation, Doctrine and Covenants section 8. This is what God speaks to, the mind and the heart. So if the adversary can jam the channels of communication, that's good military strategy, right? Take out the communications of the enemy. Run interference. Jam the frequency. Then no wonder faith can be replaced with something else. Over and over in these three verses, you'll see the mind and the heart side by side. Attacking the heart? Verse 1, hard in their hearts. Verse 2, imagining up some vain thing in their hearts. Later in 2, lead away and deceive the hearts of the people. End of 2, Satan got possession of the hearts of the people again. Verse 3, leading away the hearts of the people. It's unmistakable. And the flip side, the mind, they began to forget. Verse 1, blind in their minds verse 1. Blind in their eyes, verse 2. That still seems to be cognitive. Lead them away to believe that the doctrine of Christ was a foolish and vain thing, verse 2. Change your perspective on the gospel, mind. Change how you feel about the gospel, heart. And, as well, you see this relationship between belief and behavior. If I can get you to believe the doctrine is foolish, if I can get you to disbelieve all that you've heard and seen, then no wonder by the end of this passage, I can tempt you and cause you to do great wickedness. True doctrine leads behavior upward, President Packer said, which means that false doctrine would leave behavior downward. Beliefs and behaviors always seem to come together. Now summarizing the rest of this chapter more briefly, from verses four through eight, time passes. They begin to recalibrate their calendar from the coming of Christ. Verse 9, Nephi is still nowhere to be found. And sure enough, we never will see him again. Verse 10, the people remain in wickedness. There's a lot being pulled to that side of the spectrum. But there's plenty on the other side too. Notwithstanding the much preaching and prophesying which was sent among them. We're seeing polarization again. In verse 11, the Gadianton robbers continue to increase. They lay waste cities. They spread death and carnage to the point that both the Nephites and the Lamanites have to unite to fight against them. And that's exactly what happens in 12. All the Lamanites who had been converted unto the Lord did unite with their brethren, the Nephites. They were compelled for the safety of their lives and their women and their children to take up arms against those Gadianton robbers. No chance for the pacifism of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's anymore. They have to take up arms to maintain their rights, their privileges of their church, their worship, their freedom, their liberty. This is title of Liberty 2.0. But as a result of this full unification of the righteous, regardless of lineage or heritage or race, verse 14, those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites. And then 15, their curse was taken from them and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. Now I talked about this last time with Samuel the Lamanite. We had a long discussion about this in the lesson from Alma chapter 3 with the Amlicites, the curse and the mark as two separate distinct things. The curse was and always is separation from God, whereas the mark can be anything. Skin color, mark on the forehead, presence or absence of the Holy Ghost is the ultimate and unmistakable mark. 
So again, do not conflate the two. Do not make the curse and the mark synonymous. They aren't. Even here in verse 15, there seems to be two separate things happening. The curse was taken from them. In fact, they took it away from themselves. They were not separated from God or his people or his prophets. There was full unification between righteous Nephites and righteous Lamanites. So no curse at all. And then secondly, separately, this verse says that their skins became white unto the Nephites as well. Again, as I hinted about it last week, there are all kinds of different interpretations about these things, whether the skin is literal or metaphoric, just in terms of the scales of darkness falling from our eyes, for example, or the light in our eyes, the Savior's image in our countenance, or coats of skins used to cover their nakedness and some kind of animal skin representing righteousness or wickedness. All kinds of possibilities there. But I think in context, what's most meaningful to me is all of this in the spirit of unity. That there is no difference between them on the inside, separation from God or full unity with him. And therefore there should be no distinctions on the outside. At least none that would tempt us to color our perception of someone else. Who knows exactly what's happening here on the spectrum of literal and symbolic. But as far as personal application is concerned, I do love the lesson it teaches us about being truly one because we have finally become truly Christ's. And here the Lord was erasing all distinctions between them. You're one. You're mine. There's no distinction. There's no differentiation. There is no division. It's almost like the last 600 years of Nephite Lamanite history are getting a reboot. Let's erase all external identifiers. And really what's going to separate people will be their internal identities, who they choose to follow. Sure enough, from this moment forward, all differences between Nephites and Lamanites will be based not on race, but on righteousness. Not on color, but on commitment, on covenant, on internal choices, not on external identifiers. I think this idea of a reboot really is worth considering. By the time you get to verse 17, after all this talk of unity, it says that the people of Nephi began to gain some advantage of the robbers. Unfortunately, in 18, which reintroduces wickedness and contentions and dissensions, in other words, a lack of unity, no wonder that verse ends with the Gadianton robbers gaining many advantages over them. You see, 17 and 18 is this tug of war over who has the advantage, and it all revolves around the issue of unity versus division. A house divided against itself cannot stand. We will always be at a social and spiritual disadvantage as long as we allow divisions to separate us. Advantage, on the other hand, will always come as a result of becoming truly one. The choice is theirs, as the choice is ours. And as the chapter ends in 19, the sword of destruction is hanging over them, just as Samuel the Lamanite had prophesied. Now the polarization that we saw in chapter 2 will continue in chapter 3. This time it really comes to a head as we see a Gadianton robber against a Nephite chief judge. The governor of the Gadianton robbers is a man named Gideonhi, 
and the governor of the people of Nephi is a man named Laconius, who has a chief captain named Gidgadoni. I'm sorry that both names start with G. It can be really confusing. Gideonhi is the bad guy. Gidgadoni is the good guy. And here, in this chapter, Laconius is a good guy as well. Now, what you see in chapter 3 is the robbers making certain demands of the righteous Nephites, and then those Nephites making certain preparations in response. Gideonhi, the bad guy, writes a letter to Laconius, the good guy. And that goes from verse 2 through verse 10. And it can be boiled down to this. Surrender your cities or die. The Gideon robbers just wanted to take over everything, and so they're threatening the Nephites with destruction. But rhetorically, this epistle is fascinating. I'll leave you to read it start to finish. But if you take apart the phrases and start organizing them along rhetorical lines, what, are, what is he trying to accomplish? There's some fascinating insights here. For example, he begins with flattering words. We see that phrase often in the scriptures as those are attacking believers. Look at verse 2. Laconius, most noble and chief governor of the land. And he just sensed this epistle just dripping with sugary, sweet, flattering words. I'm trying to convince you to be on my side, to lower your defenses. Verse 2 is full of it. I write this epistle unto you and do give unto you exceedingly great praise because of your firmness and also the firmness of your people. Later he says, you do stand well in the defense of your liberty and your property and your country. Oh, kudos to you, Laconius. You're doing a great job over there in Zarahemla. Verse 3, he calls him again, most noble Laconius. Verse 5, he speaks of their noble spirit in the field of battle. Can you sense Gideonhi just buttering him up, trying to get in his good graces? So often I see that in people trying to attack faith or simply to persuade us into taking their side on any position. Now, the flattering words quickly shift into what I would call subtle insinuations. Maybe this guy's not quite as friendly as he first appears. So in verse 2, in the midst of all this flattering words, he uses phrases like, you're maintaining that which ye suppose to be your right and liberty. Just that word suppose is that subtle insinuation. In the middle of that compliment that you stand well in defense, he, he pulls it back just a touch when he says, as if ye were supported by the hand of a God. That as if tips us off, that he's not really offering that compliment. In fact, at the end of verse 2, when he says, you've been defending your liberty and your property and your country, he then weakens that by saying, or that which ye do call so. We'll see soon. It, it, he doesn't really consider it their property or their country. But you call it that. You see the subtlety on Gideonhi's part? Well, he went from flattering words into subtle insinuations and now into more fully demeaning words. In verse 3, for example, when he says, Oh, most noble Laconius, please don't be so foolish and vain. That pair seems to go together frequently. We just saw it in the previous chapter about the doctrine of Christ. Not quite so flattering as he used to be, right? Well, you'll also see in this epistle evidence of insincerity, that Gideonhi is simply a pretended peacemaker. In verse 3, he says, oh, it seemeth a pity unto me. I really don't want to go down this path. I, I, I would hate to, to have to attack you. In verse 5, he says, I'm, I feel for your welfare. Verse 10, again, this 
feigned innocence, this insincerity, this pretended peacemaking. I hope that ye will deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood. Again, it would be a pity to have to kill you over this. But the demand, the more forceful demand, is always lurking somewhere behind. It comes out most obviously in verse 6. I write unto you, desiring that you would yield up unto this my people, your cities, your lands, and your possessions. Now these demands are accompanied by some promises. I'll let you decide how sincere you think these promises are. But in verse 7, he says, Yield yourselves up unto us. Unite with us. Become acquainted with our secret works and become our brethren, that ye may be like unto us, not our slaves, but our brethren, partners of all our substance. That begs the question, then who are you going to prey upon? You are Gadianton robbers, after all. And if your victims all of a sudden become fellow partners, then who are we going to victimize? This system doesn't seem to be sustainable unless there are outsiders to prey upon. But here's his feigned promise. He even says in verse 8, I swear unto you with an oath, you won't be destroyed. Now, if these soft promises are the equivalent of his earlier flattering words, then there is a certain intimidation factor that goes along with the subtlety and demeaning words came before as well. So get a sense of this intimidation through some of the threats that he levels, some of the foregone conclusions that he presents. Back in verse 3, don't suppose that ye can stand against so many brave men who are at my command. He says they now at this time stand in their arms. They're ready and waiting. They do await with great anxiety, which we would say eagerness, not fear, for the word go down upon the Nephites and destroy them. In verse 4, they have an unconquerable spirit. We've proven it in the field of battle. They have an everlasting hatred towards you. And as a result, they would come down against you and visit you with utter destruction. Still feeling pretty good about those promises and the pretended peacemaking? In verse 6, when he says to yield up their cities and possessions, he threatens them at the end. That would be better than visiting you with a sword and destruction coming upon you. In verse 8, I swear unto you with an oath to send my armies. They shall spare not, but shall slay you until ye shall become extinct. Now, in spite of all this intimidation, Gideonhai still tries to come across as innocence personified. He seeks to establish his own credibility, his own respectability. That's best seen in verse 9. I am the governor of this, the secret society of Gideonton. It sounds legitimate. It's a society, there's a governor, which society and the works thereof I know to be good. Well, from your perspective, I guess. And they are of ancient date, and they have been handed down unto us. You see, we have tradition on our side. We have antiquity speaking to our respectability. He doesn't clarify that it's been handed down from the devil, that the ancient source seemed to be Cain, Not exactly the most credible precedent. But then in an even greater attempt to shift things, to shift the morality or the respectability of these two parties, having claimed credibility and respectability on his part, he then lays the blame at the feet of the Nephites. We've seen Zormites and Lamanites do that before. In verse 4, he speaks of the many wrongs which ye have done unto them. 
No wonder they're justified in their anger. In verse 10, he says, They have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them their rights of government. So, of course, I need to come to avenge their wrongs. You see what he's done start to finish? It's so fascinating. To flatter and insinuate, to demean, to pretend, to make demands and offer promises, but veil and unveil threats to wrestle over credibility and blame. So interesting what this Gadianton governor is up to. But starting in verse 11, we see the Nephites' response through their leader, Laconius. When he received this epistle, he was exceedingly astonished, I would be too, because of the boldness of Gideonhi, demanding the possession of the lands of the Nephites and also of threatening the people, avenging wrongs of those that have received no wrong, save it where they had wronged themselves by dissenting away unto those wicked and abominable robbers. It's like, are you serious? Back in verse 10, when it said, my people may recover their rights and I will avenge their wrongs. Do you have any idea what rights and wrongs are about, Gideon High? You've completely reversed them. The only wrongs that have been done are self-inflicted wrongs on your part. Remember Samuel prophesied of that. He that doeth iniquity doeth it unto himself. Well, notice what Laconius and his people start to do. Verse 12, Laconius was a just man. He could not be frightened by the demands and the threatenings of a robber. Love that about him. He's not taken in by this rhetoric. So he will not hearken to the epistle of Gideonhi, but he did cause that his people should cry unto the Lord for strength against the time that the robbers should come down against them. I guess that was one part of the epistle that he did believe in. You're threatening us with destruction, and I do believe that you mean to try to conquer us. You were hoping for an easy victory. Well, that's not going to come. Well, we don't believe in an easy victory for ourselves either. It's going to take our efforts, and most importantly, it'll take the strength of the Lord. Notice Laconius doesn't fear his enemy. He fears God. And he doesn't just put his trust in his own people. He puts his trust in the Lord. Great lessons on God versus man here. Then verse 13, he sends a proclamation that all of his people should gather together unto one place. Remember, advantage comes through unity, and he's going to try to take advantage of that fact. Verse 14, we then see physical preparation. They cause fortifications to be built round about them. The strength exceedingly great places guards round about them to watch them, to guard them from the robbers, keeps them there day and night. Talk about watching steadfastly like we saw earlier. Hypervigilance here, strong fortifications. And then the physical preparation in 14 is accompanied by spiritual preparation in 15. He says unto them, As the Lord liveth, except ye repent of all your iniquities and cry unto the Lord, ye will in no wise be delivered out of the hands of those Gadianton robbers. Remember President Hinckley's famous statement in the conference right after the 9-11 attacks. Our safety lies in repentance. Our strength comes of obedience to the commandments of God. Laconius gets that. Thankfully, his people get it too. Verse 16, so great and marvelous were the words and prophecies of Laconius that they did cause fear to come upon all the people, but not fear of their enemies, fear of God in a good way. They did exert themselves in their might to do according to the words of Laconius. We'll prepare on the outside and the inside, the physical and the spiritual. 
In 17, he appoints chief captains over all the armies so that they can command those armies at the time that the robbers should come down out of the wilderness against them. I love that he, in, as the centralized leader, is preparing in advance to delegate authority. When the fighting actually comes, I can't decide everything from my single vantage point. I have to teach correct principles and then when push comes to shove, let you govern yourselves. Interesting to see in our day just how much the church is decentralizing certain things. Home church, home-centered, church-supported. We have a Laconius in Salt Lake that is appointing chief captains within every family in the church. You have to be ready to follow local commands. Fight the battles within your immediate area without having to wait for central command. Now the chief among all those chief captains we meet at the end of 18, again his name was Gidgadoni, but in 19 we learn something about him and something about Laconius. It was the custom among all the Nephites to appoint for their chief captains, save it were in their times of wickedness when this wasn't an option, to appoint someone that had the spirit of revelation. That's the gift of the Holy Ghost. And also prophecy. That's the testimony of Jesus. Therefore, this Gidgadoni was a great prophet among them, as also was the chief judge. What's going to prepare us to win this war? To defeat the dangers of our day? Gathering, becoming one, fortifying ourselves, repenting of our sins, heeding the words of our prophetic leaders and preparing to lead our own families ourselves, having prophets at the helm, guided by the spirit of revelation and prophecy. Now there's an interesting balance between receiving delegated authority like we see in verse 17 and still trusting those chief captains who are inspired of God in 19. And you see that in 20 and 21. Because in 20, the people, having received some of that delegated authority, say to their leader, Gidgadoni, hey, let's pray unto the Lord and let us go upon the mountains and into the wilderness that we may fall upon the robbers and destroy them in their own lands. Let's take the battle to them. Let's go on the offensive. And yet Gidgadoni responds in 21, oh, the Lord forbid. If we should go up against them, the Lord would deliver us into their hands. Therefore, we will prepare ourselves in the center of our lands and we will gather all our armies together, and we will not go against them. This cannot become an offensive war. It must remain on the defensive. We will wait till they shall come against us. Therefore, as the Lord liveth, if we do this, he will deliver them into our hands. Go phrase by phrase through verse 21. And what is Gidgadoni calling for? What is the Lord calling for? An inoffensive, prepared, centered, gathered, immovable, patient, expectant, covenant-keeping, faith-filled people of God. That's who will win this war. That's who we must become. Trusting that inspiration more than their own best thought, verse 22, they do as commanded. They gather all the people and all of their substance and they go forth to the place which had been appointed that they should gather themselves together to defend themselves against their enemies. And that was the area that stretched from Zarahemla to Bountiful. Now Zarahemla is synonymous with the church. Bountiful becomes synonymous with the temple. Zarahemla is synonymous with the prophets. Bountiful becomes synonymous with the Lord himself. 
where will we gather and center ourselves to defend ourselves from our enemies in the church and the temple, following the lead of the prophets and the Lord? Sink your roots, build your foundation in Zion, and we will always be able to keep Babylon at bay. There assembled, in verse 25, they did fortify themselves against their enemy. They did dwell in one land, in one body. They did fear the words which had been spoken by Laconius, again, good fear, insomuch that they did repent of all their sins, and they put up their prayers unto the Lord their God that he would deliver them in the time that their enemies should come down against them to battle. You get a sense of Zion there, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no spiritually poor among them. Verse 26, they also make weapons of war of every kind and become strong with armor, shields and bucklers after the manner of Gidgadoni's instruction. You wanna be ready for this? Then get armed and armored. Take upon yourself the whole armor of God and do it after the instruction of the prophets that God has placed before us. With that level of protection and preparation, we can do what Elder Joseph B. Worthland once counseled us to do, to face the world around us and say, come what may and love it. <laughs>